The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm June Thomas, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Beast, Brontes, and Broadway edition. It's Wednesday, March 28, 2017. On today's show, the box office juggernaut known as Beauty and the Beast. The live-action Disney musical has taken in $690 million worldwide in just two weeks. We'll discuss the enduring appeal of the story of a beautiful, bookish young woman who falls in love with her kidnapper, a creature who doesn't even seem to be human. Then, To Walk Invisible, a TV drama about the Bronte sisters that originated on the BBC and aired on PBS this past Sunday. It was written, directed and co-produced by one of Britain's greatest TV talents, Sally Wainwright. And finally, the wonderful actress Alison Wright, best known as poor Martha Hansen on The Americans, will stop by. She has a juicy role in FX's feud, Betty and Joan, and she recently made her Broadway debut in Lynn Nottage's Sweat, which opened on Broadway on Sunday and which we got a chance to see this past weekend. But who is we? Steve, Dana and Julia are all on vacation. Rest assured they'll be back next week. For this Ruo Orazib Sefbag, which of course is our Bizarro Gabfest, backward. <laughs> <laughs> they gave me the keys to the studio, so I gathered together a few of my favourite Slate writers and gabbers, Slate spook critic Laura Miller. Hi, Laura. Hi. And Slate's TV critic Willa Paskin. Hey, Willa. Hey. We'll do business later. Let's get right into our first segment. So, Beauty and the Beast, it's the new hit Disney movie directed by Bill Condon and starring Emma Watson and Dan Stevens in the title roles. It's a live-action, more or less, version of the 1991 animated classic. Let's listen to a clip. Bonjour. 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 There goes the baker with his tray like always. The same old bread and rolls to sell. Every morning just the same. Since the morning that we came to this poor provincial town. Good morning, Belle. Morning, Monsieur Jean. Have you lost something again? Well, I believe I have. The problem is, I can't remember what. <laughs> oh, well, I'm sure it'll come to me. Where are you off to? To return this book to Père Robert. It's about two lovers in Fair Verona. Sounds boring. So this is the opening where Belle, the main character, the title character, is sort of wandering around the insanely picturesque French village where she lives. It's sort of vaguely 18th century. And she's a big reader. She's a bookworm. And everyone thinks that she's weird in this village. And she's just bored. You know, she's your classic sort of restless young person who, you know, always has her nose in a book and dreams of of getting away. And she complains about her provincial life. And then she goes home to her doting papa, who is makes sort of mechanical? Well, he's like a kind toy of like a maker. clock maker, toy yeah, maker, yeah. some combination thereof. Played by Kevin Klein. The thing that's funny about having to do that description is, it's almost like doesn't everybody know how Beauty and the Beast starts, <laughs> um, or certainly everyone who is paid to see it? It's not like you're going to see a movie that you've never seen before. Yeah, you don't need a, a setup for for the premise. Although I'm not. I'm not sure I ever saw the original animated film. You know, I saw it in the cinema. I remember because I remember making a lame joke after I came out, but I didn't. But then again, and then I saw it again last weekend because I was staying with someone and they watched it. And 
it looked very different to what I had in my head. Like it's <laughs> 90s animation, which is old school animation. This is going to be sacrilegious. Mm. But I was of the correct age when um, these Disney films came out to like be enamored with them. I mean, this sort of um, the like the sort of re- burgeoning of Disney animation after some uh, many fallow years, like Little Mermaid, Aladdin, The Lion King, and Beauty and the Beast. I was um, you were a tot. I wasn't a tot, but I was probably like in middle school and high school and stuff, um, and and in elementary school for The Little Mermaid. And I loved them. I loved The Little Mermaid in particular. I loved Aladdin. I loved Lion King. In fact, Beauty and the Beast was always for some reason, my least favorite, even though I think people think it's the best. But I don't think that The Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast are quite as fantastic in retrospect as they sort of are in our memories for various reasons we can get into. But I think they are a little thinner than mm. um, than we sort of imagine them to be. And actually, even in this version, I was reminded that for the score for all the three or four songs that you know – there's actually only three or four songs that you know. Yeah. Then they've added in these songs that are all like completely forgettable. Yeah. But that the the songs that there are are sort of they're such interesting choices. I mean, it's like there's this whole long song about the villain. Right. There's this song about the town, and then there's sort of like no, and then there's um, be know, our, our guest. guest. Right. But there's kind of none of the stuff you expect in like musicals, and actually that also is in Little Mermaid. That's like kind of character building in the mm-hmm. same way. They're mm-hmm. kind of they are more pop songs in in well, the way that they have a mood but not like they don't do that much exposition well one of the songs that they added um is the one that's about the beast and it's like it's it's the most forgettable of them all i right? literally don't remember right. what you're speaking right of, and i saw the movie three days ago. yeah well and now i'm like i'm kind of <laughs> doubting myself so clearly i'm you know i'm also uncertain myself but i believe that's so but okay so the song that we just heard when you go in for this remake in a sense you're reassured like oh this is almost like just a, a complete reenactment of the animated version, but just with more people and just exaggerated. It's as if to say, I know you think that there's th- certain things you can only do with animation, but look, we can do them with real humans. We can have like a thousand people stuffed into a square. You know what it reminded me of? And it remi- have you seen Enchanted, the, a- the Amy yes, Adams yes. film that was is like um, a sort of modern day send up of a Disney movie made by Disney that is until it falls apart at the end, I think like, truly so delightful and fantastic and it in this movie sort of the live action stuff reminded me so much of some of the live action stuff in enchanted but without without the twist of Uh it like being cheeky and modern and so a sequence like this reminded me of the huge dance sequence in central park that's in enchanted where they're sort of like yes we can do exactly as you said all the stuff we do in animation here we can get all these people we can make it huge and interesting but it did feel like a little to like what end in this exactly. instance because especially the townspeople are like it's not we're not going to see them again mm-hmm. like they aren't doing anything that's like that funny it's sort of almost like a, it was literally like a, a show of um choreography or like yeah. i mean it wasn't one take but it had like that yeah. feel where it's like i'm showing off that we can move all these 150 yeah. characters and carriages around and it also showed us Oh, yeah, she's going to be singing, but her voice is a little bit thin. She being um, Emma Watson. She being Emma Watson, yeah. You know, so I think since the film has come out, one of the talking points about it um, has been, like, she's not a good enough singer, even though she's sort of perfectly 
cast in terms of her looks and in terms of her personality. But I didn't mind. I actually thought that that was one of the better parts of it because it kept it from being this blaring Broadway-esque thing where like some chick is just deafening you with her Oh my god! Over the top voice. Well, it's funny that you say that because I worship Audra McDonald, who also does sing in the show. She is the the wardrobe essentially. But at the beginning, when before everybody is transformed, she's singing in Audra McDonald style, and and it's like that's a bit much love. Like there's one musical number in this movie that I thought was good, which was the Gaston number, mostly because it was just people in a room singing and dancing with a minimum <laughs> of palaver around mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. And um and so it, it was the most human part of what is really a pretty plastic piece of corporate culture in yeah. my opinion. <laughs> I mean, but that's the sort of the what you get with Disney. I mean, it 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 has this kind of lack of humanity that is sort of <laughs> You didn't find it charming? No. Wow. Elaborate please. Um well, I I, I mean, okay, Part of it is just that I don't like any Disney fairy tale adaptations because I feel like they bastardize the source material and take everything that's interesting out of it. So while there are some Disney animated films that I like, I love 101 Dalmatians, partly because it has a really distinctive visual design that's these sort of watercolor washes and blues and purples over this sort of line drawing. And it's just very striking and moody. Um, I don't really like this pseudo golden period of Disney animation because it all looks the same and it all looks like it just is produced by a machine to me. The truth is that the horror genre and the fairy tale genre are much closer than the fairy tale genre and the romance genre. And that, um, you know, these are stories that are raw and primitive and they're about hunger and mating and, <laughs> you know, uh, f- the fear of death and the and war between the generations. I mean, fairy tales are not this kind of little, again, plasticky oh, greeting card thing. Specifically but. in the context of Beauty and the Beast in particular. I mean, we're talking about a story that is full of sex and menace and rape and authority. I mean, all of these ideas are are so clearly inherent in this idea of a woman who is taken in by a monster and then she finds herself attracted to him. There's this kind of, you know, rawness and this sort of lack of psychology in fairy tales that Mm -hmm. is what makes them appealing to me. And so I just it sets my nerves on edge to see this sort of like I said, it's like a greeting card version of them that drives me nuts. I think some of it is there, even though it's not there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was speaking with someone yesterday who was also had seen it over the weekend, and she said she was crying throughout. And I was like, oh, and I imagine that that meant that she, you know, she found the romance so moving. But no, she said, I just felt so bad for those people who've been transformed into objects, inanimate objects. And, you know, and I just was so worried about them that they maybe, you know, they were just going to end their lives as candelabra or whatever. And, you know, that certainly this whole thing of this guy who is punished and because he his heart you know he, he can only see fuckable women basically and he's those are the only people he gives time to his his cure is to for a fuckable woman to fall for him <laughs> i mean that's it there's there is a lot that's messed up in this movie in this story it's not it's not it could be a lot more disney fine I, I mean i think that when you get into the whole backstory and the psychology of it 
then it doesn't, it completely falls apart. It doesn't make any sense. And it's mm. just kind of monstrous because the original material is, it's really just about how men are monsters. <laughs> and the only way to sort of get them to be human is, is for them to start to, you know, care about a woman or to be loved by a woman. So to be tamed. Is I don't yeah. even think it's that. I think there's actually like um, not subtext. There is text about some of this stuff, which is just that in both the animated version and certainly in this version, the Beast, who's played by Dan Stevens, um, is so much more appealing as the Beast than he ever is as Dan Stevens. Like there is this moment. I mean, you know, he transforms at the end from the Beast into this sort of blonde totally bland yeah. Prince Charming and like he's wearing these terrible blue platform <laughs> shoes and you know and and even I mean even for this movie there's like a tongue-in-cheek joke where um, Belle asks him like to grow a beard and he sort of growls at her and like winks in a kind of campy way but it's true where he just is so much more handsome and um, appealing as this animal yes than he is as his sort of like uh, cleaned wan <laughs> Well, there's this famous story uh, about the the old French film of Beauty and the Beast, the Cocteau film. Tallulah Bankhead famously came out of seeing that movie after the transformation and said, give me back my beast. <laughs> well, there's one more thing I would like us to talk about, maybe even briefly before we end this segment, which is, So one of the few things that was a little bit different in this version is that Bill Condon revealed a couple of weeks ago to a British gay magazine that he had directed LeFou as exclusively gay, famously. (laughs) That was his famous turn of phrase. And, you know, the, the, the relationship between LeFou and Gaston is more explicitly kind of longing in this version. What did you make of that little bit of... I did not know this when I saw it, and I did not realize that that was going on. Uh-huh. I knew that it was going to be in, so um, it's weird. It was really like under and overhyped, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, as right. our colleagues at Slate have talked about, which is like it's kind of this minor um, development for this sort of minor character, and it is totally in the text like mm-hmm. it, or it's certainly in the if the original text if we consider the animated film so it's just like to draw it out yeah um but the moment where he actually like the gay reveal is so brief it's just this this dance it's like a second of right. dancing at the end um it's funny some people yeah <laughs> i'm like I, exactly. i'm speechless like, exactly. i can only croak yeah. like i don't it, it is almost it's just a funny thing that they that they made such a big deal out of it mm-hmm. um, one way or another. Right. And some people have said, oh, that's for adults. The kids won't notice. And I actually think that it's one of those things that kids of today are not, they'll it's, notice and they couldn't care less. And it's the adults who are going to be like, oh, my God. That's and, something new. Yeah. And yeah. Disney did stand up, you know, just to give Disney a little bit of praise. Um, when Malaysia threatened to, you know, exclude the movie or censor the movie, they stood up to them and didn't make any refuse to make any changes it so. is also though like such a weird storyline because it lacks yes. so much like psychological depth yes, where yes. you're like oh lefou is a is a is a weasel yeah like he goes along with yeah. a sidekick yeah he's a villain sidekick yeah, yeah. And a minion he, he really is a minion <laughs> yeah and so yeah then to give him this um sort of like a, a, a this character beat yeah but like as if it's not related to him being yeah. a scoundrel is yeah. sort of like a a strange thing to do. And, you know, that was another thing. They did give Gaston a little more balance as a sort of, like, they suggested that he had kind of PTSD from battles uh-uh. that he'd been he in. He was really bad. I still <laughs> thought he was, like, just straight up villain. So, yeah, he I, was my favorite part of the movie. Really? He really After the teapot, yeah. yeah. Um, just because he was 
just so kind of delicious. I don't know. I, I guess in a movie this sort of processed and sort of bland, I just feel like the bad guy is going to be the most interesting character. And played by a Welshman, so he gets some points for that. All right, we must wrap up this topic. So listeners, did you see and enjoy The New Beauty and the Beast? Go to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell us what you thought. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Before we move on to the second segment, let's do the business. First is the Culture Gabs Fest first ever live show in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, April 19th at 7.30 p.m. at the Hamilton. If you'd like to spend an evening with Dana, Steve, and Julia, then head on over to Slate.com slash live for more details and to buy tickets. We've also got an announcement for two GabFest adjacent shows. For the first time ever, Slate will be bringing two live shows, Represent with Aisha Harris and Trumpcast, to the Tribeca Film Festival. Represent is on April 24th at 6.45 at the SVA Theater, and Trumpcast is April 30th at 8.15 p.m., also at the SVA Theater. For more information and tickets, visit slate.com slash live. Slate Plus members, you will receive 25% off your tickets to these shows and all festival screenings and events. And speaking of Slate Plus today, Laura, what is our Slate Plus segment? Our Slate Plus segment today is about the books, films, television, and any other cultural product that we long to see, but that has been denied to us by the cruelties of fate. (laughs) Just what we fantasize about being able to to read and watch. If you want to hear segments like that um, and get all sorts of Slate shows plus ad-free podcasts and know that you're helping to support Slate and the journalism that we do, sign up for Slate Plus. If you're curious, you can hear our bonus segments and ad-free shows free for 90 days. Just download our new iOS app at slate.com slash app and you can get all the benefits of Slate Plus for three months. That's slate.com slash app. Okay, to the Brontes. Sally Wainwright is one of Britain's foremost TV talents and a big favourite of the three of us gathered here today. Her series include Last Tango in Halifax, Scott and Bailey and Happy Valley. And most recently, she made a two hour movie about the lives of an extraordinary 19th century family of writers, the Williams sisters of their day, if you will, Charlotte, Emily and Anne Bronte in To Walk Invisible, the Bronte sisters, which originally aired in Britain over the New Year holiday and made its US debut on Sunday on PBS. Let's listen to a clip. Then dawned the invisible. The unseen its truth reveals. My outward sense is gone. My inward essence feels. Its wings are almost free. Its home, its harbour found. Measuring the gulf, it stoops and dares the final bound. Oh, dreadful is the check. Intense the agony. When the ear begins to hear and the eye begins to see. When the pulse begins to throb, the brain to think again. The soul to feel the flesh and the flesh to feel the chain. Yet... I would lose no sting, would wish no torture less. The more that anguish racks, the earlier it will bless. And robed in fires of hell, or bright with heavenly shine, if it but herald death, the vision is divine. That is Finn Atkins, who plays Charlotte Bronte, reading one of Emily Bronte's poems, which she's sort of taken out of a drawer 
against Emily's wishes. She knows Emily has been writing, but doesn't want to show the work to anybody. And so she she takes it out and looks at it. And it is a spectacular reading, isn't it? I mean, the idea that she's just sat there being transported by these magical words. Yes, Emily's Emily's poetry is very was extremely sort of raw and unfancy for her time and full of powerful, fierce, mystical yearnings. And just they're really extraordinary. And and they do really convey that beautifully in the film. So this movie is focused on the years 1845 to 48, which was the first time apparently that the three sisters and their brother Branwell and their father, the Reverend Patrick Bronte, uh, played by Jonathan Price, uh, were living under the same roof. During that time, Branwell was dealing with alcohol and drug addiction as well as career disappointments. Willa, was there too much Branwell in this film for you? This movie has some dramatic structural problems that it tries to solve in interesting ways, but creates, I think, a few more problems for itself, which is basically the question is, how do you dramatize creativity in a way that is interesting and not just a person sitting alone in a room? And um, Sally Wainwright has basically opted not to show uh, the writing process almost at all. And so in lieu of showing the writing process at all, although there is sort of an opening scene where you see the girls as kids and with their brother Randall, and they sort of literally have fires above their head, halos above their head. They're burning with intensity and story. Um, it looks kind of like a Harry Potter scene or something. Um, and then we jump right into the very realistic uh, telling of their lives in which Branwell's fire has been doused by his various troubles and, and the sisters has not. Um, basically, in deciding not to sort of see how they kept those fires alive, it turns to family drama. Um, And so Branwell kind of becomes central to the story. I think that Sally Wainwright was doing as happens when you like immerse yourself in a body of scholarship, you start to correct for the scholarship instead of correct. And sometimes that can lead you to strange places where people who know less about the story than you come to a story like this and are like, oh, you've somehow put the like loser brother at the very center of the story about these three amazing sisters. And I think Sally Wainwright rightfully thought like this this was an alcoholic living in their house. He he really had its huge influence on all of them. And that is sort of he is often displayed as like discussed as a loser brother. And in fact, he had this palpable influence on their work. And can you imagine what it must have been like to live with a person like that at the time? And all that's really interesting, but it does sort of make the dynamics of this story orbit around their ne'er-do-well brother in a way as, as like sort of the the impetus for kind of not just for their work, but certainly their will to be published because they needed to find a way to support themselves. Yeah, I did not mind this. And I think that partly that's because I think that Sally Wainwright is not a sort of symbolic or um, mystical filmmaker. Mm-hmm. She makes family dramas and the realism of what she does is the power of what she does. And so I, I felt like the the family drama was interesting to me. The reality of the of living with the alcoholic and particularly the relationship between Emily and Branwell is so beautifully executed. The way that in a way, they are each other's favorite, but then they hate each other because of that. And and there's a 
the sense that they could be violent with each other. But then there's also this amazing scene where they're sitting outside at night looking at them at the moon. And then they hear a dog howl and then they both start howling together. And also that relationship in a not heavy handed way, like evokes Catherine and Heathcliff in, in Wuthering yeah. Heights. Like you get it without it having yes. to be like super. Ex- I mean, there there is a sort of scene, one of the only scenes that really links um their life to their work in a sort of directly biograph autobiographical way, which I actually really liked that there wasn't a lot of that mm-hmm. in this, that like the idea is that these people had imaginations. <laughs> it's yeah. not like um but it is it involves Emily sort of having heard this gossipy story that you can see some connections to Wuthering Heights um too that she tells to Anne that she would like to write about. But you even but that is like a more direct link. And then there's a sort of very kind of like exactly as a passionate, angry, but very loving relationship with mm-hmm. her brother. Um, and then between Char- – I mean like the relationships among all the characters are so fascinating. And I think that's what is the strength of the movie. Like the way that Charlotte and Emily, who are the two really big talents in the family, don't get along because – Charlotte is sort of the most ambitious and sort of determined to sort of she's controlled and she's normal. You feel like she's the person who's going to go out into the world and represent the family, which eventually is what she did. And then Emily is this weird eccentric who's at home, like kneading bread and, and loves animals. And- yeah, yeah, and and the and the sort of peculiar rivalry that they have and and the tensions in that relationship and the way that Anne plays the sort of intermediary who kind of sort of soothes smooths everyone's feathers it's i i found all of that wonderful also it's Sally Wainwright uh, talked to Tracy Chevalier about Wuthering Heights and she revealed herself to basically not be a Charlotte, like to, to basically have a sort of grudge against Charlotte for how Charlotte, who survived, who out survived her sisters by uh, eight or yeah. almost a decade, like sort of uh, treated their legacies. But it, I thought that you could actually see that in the text of the of yeah. the film, which is that Charlotte kind of, you know, is the one who did the most work ultimately, who was like the best known and you could imagine and is sort of the most normal in some ways you could sort of imagine uh her getting like the heroic edit in a in a standard <laughs> yeah, film about them. and in this one yeah. this one she sort of just doesn't like yeah. she's she's um she's sort of pinched and um and controlling but i also did think like i thought that those dynamics were very well developed but then there was just so much other stuff like the movie is very focused on how they got published, like the mechanics of their work getting out in the world. Just as people, you know, ask this question of Shakespeare, how could this guy, how could this working class man without much education or without much experience of the world have created this? It can't have been him. And although I don't think there's any, you know, there's no contesting that that the Bronte sisters wrote their books, I think there is this unspoken question of where did all that come from and how did they how did they manage that? They were often this really quite remote part of Yorkshire uh, and, you know, how. And so I think she was answering the hows a little bit. Well, so they were huge readers, which is another thing that's really hard to show in a film. And they were obsessed with Lord Byron. I mean, clearly he influenced the, the heroes of their two most famous books. And Branwell is like, depicted as the downside of the Byronic character, the sexual yeah. transgression, the substance abuse, the general dissip- dissipation. I mean, he's such an annoying character, but yes. he's also a fascinating character. And the the actor who plays Branwell, Adam Nagaitis, is so 
fantastic. I mean, the sort of torment of the pressure. I mean, he is a, he's, it's, you, you actually do sympathize with him. And, and I, you know, you're sort of, if you're a Bronte person, you're just used to like being, oh, Brad, well, what a cross everyone had to bear. What a jerk, you know. So at the end of the film, there's this peculiar, I, I have to say, like, what, 170 year time jump to the Howarth Parsonage Museum and Gift Shop. Uh, a long tracking shot yeah. through the gift shop. As if yeah. this like somehow encapsulates their enormous legacy. legacy. Well, see, now, my theory is that Sally Wainwright was actually referencing a classic Victoria Wood sketch, Victoria Wood being this northern British <laughs> comedian. And she has a very famous sketch called Bronte Burgers, which is a kind of a, it's really like a, a recitation of a guide to the Howarth Parsonage. On the table, we see the Reverend Bronte's gloves. They tell us such a lot about him. He had two hands and he wasn't missing any <laughs> fingers. We think they were knitted by one of the famous Bronte sisters. I don't suppose their brother Bramwell could knit. And anyway, being an alcoholic, he'd never have been able to cast on. <laughs> And then just one more thing. Now, if anybody would like a souvenir to take home, has a souvenir. We have Bronte video games, body warmers, acrylic mitts, pedestal mats, feminine deodorants and novelty tea strainers. Snacks and light refreshments are available in the Heathcliff Nosher Bar. So please feel free to sample our very popular Bronte burgers or for the fibre conscious, our Branwell Bronte burgers. <laughs> um, would you both recommend this film? Should people seek it out? I would say that people who don't like costume dramas probably aren't going to get a lot out of it. But people who are who like them or who love them definitely should see it. Willie, your view? There's too much TV for me to recommend this in full throated. Yeah, I mean, I would actually recommend cool. something else by Sally Wainwright if you're going to. Yeah, I don't think this is really sets off the incredible talent of Sally Wainwright, who I think we all adore. I definitely adore her less than the two of you, only because it's just not like as fully formed an adoration. I like Happy Valley. I haven't seen... Oh, Last Tango in Halifax. Yeah, I... I I know. June is really (laughs) problematized. And Scott and Bailey. Yes, indeed. She's just so great. We had one character from Scott and Bailey show up, of course. Anyway, so listeners, if you've seen it, tell us what you thought. Hot takes, cold tea only. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. For our third and final segment this week, we are joined by a wonderful guest. Alison Wright was able to come to our taping because she's working nights right now and two afternoons a week as she makes her Broadway debut in Lynn Nottage's Sweat. When she speaks, you might not recognize her accent, but if you watch quality television, you will surely know her from The Americans, where she spent four seasons as Martha Hansen. She's also playing Pauline Jameson in FX's Feud, Betty and Joan, in which she had a barn burner of an episode this week. And Sweat officially opened on Sunday, March 26th. Alison, you're having a moment. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) I am, right? Very climactic one. (laughs) You are our climax, so yes. (laughs) Hear it all the time, June. I hear it all the time. I know, I bet. Uh, So we all got to see Sweat this weekend. And it's not the kind of play that typically makes it to Broadway these days. And as a piece in the New York Times last week noted, although playwright Lynn Nottage has won all kinds of awards, including a Pulitzer, uh, and her work is often staged in regional theatres, this is her Broadway debut too. So how did you come to be in the Broadway version. It's about time it's her Broadway debut as well. I think I uh, all of us could agree on that one. Um, she should have been here already, so it's great that she finally is. Um, 
the job came to me out of the blue while I was out in LA working and I put myself on tape for it. And then I had to fly back again for a call back and to meet everybody. And um, I loved the play immediately. I loved, I loved that each of the characters I could connect to and understand. Uh, I could appreciate their predicament and that they were all complicit in everything that happens within the the narrative of the play. But there was nobody that I could point a finger at or blame. So we It's do- not that clear cut. Yeah. Uh, so I really enjoyed that I could relate to all of the characters and had empathy for all of them and their journeys. And I think that's what, I mean, you guys tell me, but I think that might be what the audience takes away as well. Let's just uh, take a moment to just say In Sweat is about nine characters, nine people in Reading, Pennsylvania. It's set in 2000 and 2008, and it's essentially about what happens to the people who've worked in a steel mill when the mill is threatened with closure and eventually closes. And it's framed like a tragedy in the sense that you know from the very first scene of the play that this horrible event occurs and you go back in time to sort of meet that event. Yeah. Um, Find out how it happened. Yeah. And yeah. what it is, actually, because you know something bad happened. Yes, you know something sure what bad it is. happened, yeah. Um, can I ask a not serious question? <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, no more exciting. What's it like to like, play a drunk on stage all day? Um, it's it's funny. <laughs> you know, it's it's... It, well, it's great research because, you know, <laughs> I love just all you can go on YouTube and just watch these videos of all these people like falling over and, you know, I get, like the body stuff. So it's it's a lot of fun, but it does get into your body. You know, sometimes when you, you've you got your muscles in your body doing something, you do that long enough, it, it'll convince the brain that you actually feel that way. So oh, wow. you will get like a bit lightheaded or a bit woozy. And it's funny, you know, um, but it's a lot of fun to do it. And I think people get a real kick out of it. And as you said, the play, it does begin when we find out that something's pretty serious and bad and tragic has happened. But it, there is a lot of fun and joy and laughter within the play. And it's set at in least a for the bar. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. at least for the first part of the play, Jesse gets to be a fun drunk, <laughs> you know, and have a good time. Wait, I have another inane question about playing a drunk. So there, for the first opening, the second scene of the play, you're like collapsed on a table. And then there's a scene later where you're for the entire scene, you are also collapsed on a table. <laughs> Like what? What is your brain doing for this moment when you're on stage? Well, the first like, time she's listening to everything, right? She is she's totally with it. She's just resting her eyes. <laughs> you know, it's one of those like that's she. You know, she like like speaks up here and there. She's just she's one of those drunks in that. She's just resting her eyes. She's fine. Yeah. She's fine. <laughs> she's taking a second. So you, you also know, are just listening. And you're uh, so yes, she's. Yeah. I'm. I'm listening like she would be because there's stuff that she's responding right. to and that she knows about and. Uh, it's um it's just when she chooses to you know open her eyes and come back to the party what are you drinking when you're knocking back all those glasses of brown liquid weird tasting water yeah yeah it looks very realistic as yeah. the beer you never know the when i have the gimlets that's all right and the whiskies are all right but the beer you never know what it's going to taste like because they have to you know but you have to make it frothy and stuff right. and they have to make it the right color and it has to come through the tap so <laughs> I don't know what it's going through, but sometimes like when I take a massive swig, it's like, I feel like I've I've ingested a tapeworm for a couple of days. So it's tough. You never know. I I love the physicality of all the performances in this 
screenplay, I think it might be the thing I like the most, how every character has this really distinct way of moving and of physically responding to the different emotions that are happening. And I'm just wondering, do you guys all prepare together or do you do – it just seems like one of the more physically grounded perform- set of performances I've seen in a long time. Nice. I mean, that's, that's great to hear. Thank you. I mean, of course, the whole cast, except myself, did this play off Broadway at the public. So they've been – They've been running with this a lot longer than I have. We did have about um, two and a half weeks of rehearsal when we started this production. Um, but of course, it's it's pretty different in the rehearsal room uh, compared to when you get on the stage and on the set. And then you can really see how you, you really want to move. I think Lynn wrote very distinctive characters and it's quite clear how they feel and uh, – and act and react to things and what their personalities are. And that does become very physical, especially with the boys. You know, now you're, now you, I'm thinking about it. Now you said that it does really, there's an embodiment there of these personalities. That's, that's very cool. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that before, but <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> so, um, Jesse, as we've established, is a bit of a boozer. But she also, we learn, you know, every character we get to learn a little bit about what formed them and how they get to where they are. And we learn that although she's been working in the mill for more than a decade, that wasn't she. That wasn't her goal. It wasn't her dream. She was very close to leaving and going on the hippie trail. She was going to Tehran and Peshawar and Lahore and Kathmandu. Cities as a sort of almost like a prayer. Yeah, a mantra. That's a prayer. She says. Um, how do you see Jessie? I mean, is she disappointed because she didn't go on that? Is she? I see her as, you know, it was, it's funny when the audience reacts to that story about her wanting to go along the hippie trail and all of these cities. You know, it was a huge thing in America for Americans to go and do this. You know, there's tons of films out there that I watched about it and all these youngsters that would go and it was so safe, you know, and the uh, there had been, I think the Soviets had built really straight roads through Afghanistan. Right. Maybe it was jointly built by the U.S. and the Soviets. I hope like some history people are not screaming at their <laughs> podcast right now. But so they had a super straight road. So it was so easy for people to do it. It was easy for them to get to Istanbul and start in this place called the Pudding Shop. All the hippies <laughs> would go there and trade their information and uh, get rides with each other and just travel in a way that in 1979 stopped. It was over. It, it's never been safe or possible to do such a thing since. It's a different world now. So it was a certain like microcosm of time that anyone who was into it or did it or experienced it, it was really, you know, an, a, a life-changing experience, I think. And I can feel people in the audience, maybe the former hippies or people, <laughs> you know, I can feel them feeling it and it was a really big deal. Yeah. Younger people might not know anything about it, like I didn't really, but that's one of the joys of research, getting to find out about this stuff. So she does have that, yeah. I think she's essentially a happy person who has been working in the steel factory for more than 20 years with these mm-hmm. women. It's 20, 25 years. Wow. But when she's had a few, <laughs> the disappointment yeah. of what her life has turned out to be, that you know that sets in for her as it does for many people. You know, then she can start to get a bit bitter and that, you know, progresses a little bit through the play. Also, you know, her husband's left her and married another woman right. and then she's going to lose her job. Right. You know, she... There's not a lot to, not to, going be, that great. to be right, right happy about. Um, this is a very political play, which in a way that's, you know, you don't really see on Broadway. There's no singing and dancing that I can think of. Uh, uh, I sing and dancing. I dance. Thank you very much. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's dancing. What do you sing? I called that singing when I sing the show. 
Oh, that's right, that's right. See, look at me, already forgetting. <laughs> um, but uh, it is a very political play, and um, you know the the audience was a little bit primed to respond. You know, they were a little bit performing their responses to the to some of the things that were said and done. Um, have you kind of gotten much response from people who are, who are feeling that this is? an important time to, it seems for this timely time. yeah uh, well that's without a doubt i mean that's 100 percent true i think people before they've seen it are they're likely to ask the questions about how much is connected to the man that's the president now mm-hmm. but the reality is that lynn wrote this before then yeah. she started writing this in 2011 and she said it in 2000 and 2008 it's about bush more than it is about the person that's the president now <laughs> um but it's you know, it's the story of how we potentially ended up where we did, yeah. because 2000 and 2008, 2011 have brought us where we are today. So it's a story, you could say, of people that maybe today decided not to vote. You know, that's a uh, a theory that's, that's set forward in the play. One of the characters feels that way. Or maybe that decided to vote a certain way that that town historically, Reading, Pennsylvania, never had. But after things got so bad, people needed a change, like many of these characters in the play. So you could say that maybe there were people that voted a certain way in this election too. But other than that, it's for the American people, it's for the audience, and it's got nothing to do with him. Him. <laughs> I wish people could see Alison's face when she says him. <laughs> he who shall not be named. Just imagine it, yeah. Just imagine it. <laughs> um, so... Since many of our listeners are sadly unable to get to Broadway, let's talk about some of your television roles that you have uh, become famous for a role that was intended probably at the beginning to be a bit small, Martha Hansen. Um, You're also in Feud, where you play this fantastic character, Pauline. So good. So good. Thank you. It was a good one this week. It was, yeah. Who has a lot of ambition, but not a lot of opportunity. Well, she's just a woman, June. I know. I know. What do you expect? I know. (laughs) Now, I know that you're a researcher. Now, Pauline is a composite character, but did you, like, how did you get into that character? Well, I started with looking at Bob Aldrich because Pauline, you know, is Bob's secretary and assistant. And we decided that they'd worked together for quite a while. So I started looking at who he was as a person, what kind of personality he had, what kind of character he had, how they would have gone along, what their relationship could be like. We decided that they'd probably worked together on his previous film, Autumn Leaves, that he had done with John Crawford. And um, Ryan told me that he wanted her to be whip smart and cool as a cucumber and had <laughs> sort of like an Eve Arden sort of quality. Uh, yes. So I jumped off you know, with films like Desk Set or, you know, Rosalind Russell and Auntie Mame and the original women from 39 stuff. And I just went down a rabbit hole of that stuff, as well as watching all of Joan and Betty's films that I hadn't seen because Pauline had to um, not be intimidated by them. Mm -hmm. It was Mm -hmm. clear that she had to hold her own against them. Mm -hmm. And um, so I wanted to get as familiar as I could with all of their interviews and, and how they how they behaved and what I could potentially expect. Uh, And also I looked a lot at um, life in Hollywood in the 30s and 40s and how that was when when it began to boom because that's what she would have known about, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. where she would have, the position she would have sort of come from. And then I also, you know, got lost in this amazing book, The Feminine Mystique, that I had never read. Betty Friedan. Yes, (laughs) which is full of 
information to put me in the right mindset mm-hmm. for polling because, of course, I'm not the right age and I'm not the right nationality either. <laughs> so the things that I learned about America and, you know, the woman didn't have a couldn't have a credit card without her husband in this country till 1974. You know, I just learned fact after fact that put me in a in a, a great frame of mind for Pauline and mm-hmm. to create her from there. Mm. Well, let's talk about how you came to be here because you do have, if I may say so, a bit of an unusual accent. <laughs> well, if anyone can, I suppose you can. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, how did you come to find yourself in America? And it seems like all of your acting career has been here, or most of it. Ah, uh, well, I started off doing panto. <gasps> yes. Okay, my... you have to explain that yes. to Americans because hardly like, any of us I don't know even what know what that means. Uh, yeah. Pantomime. Oh it's its its own weird genre. It's sort of like, I mean, help me out here, June. I would say it's sort of like, well, it's fairy tales played by adults. Uh, lots of cross-dressing. Yeah. Uh, they happen at Christmas time. And it's sort of like vaudeville. And it's a lot of audience participation. Yes. Or, and... It's like Commedia dell'arte a bit. You know, it has like stock characters. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, there's archetypes. And my first one was, was with Stanley Baxter, Mother Goose. Oh, my God. Like, he was like a big deal at the time. And I remember they paid me enough after the run that I could afford to buy a Sony Walkman. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm pretty sure that was child slave labor and I just didn't know because that's not a lot of money when I thought about it. And I think I was like seven or eight when, wow. I, when I had my first one. Yeah. Wow. So you have been acting... A very long time. Well, there was a long fallow period in between as well. <laughs> My teenage years weren't that kind. But no, I came to New York because I wanted to study the method at the Lee Strasberg Theatre Institute. Wow. And that's what I came to do and then um, essentially have been here since. Wow. Um, now, so I mean, I mean, it's interesting to hear that you started as a child because from your accent, just making... Snap judgment. <laughs> Poking the lion, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm guessing like your parents didn't meet while doing rep at the old Vic. You know what I mean? <laughs> From my accent. <laughs> this is like a terrible thing that she's saying. I this know. This is terrible. This is like xenophobia at your like fellow countrymen. This is weird. Fellow no, there was, there was nobody in my family that was in the arts at all whatsoever or in any creative field at all. So how did you come to do that? My mom really liked uh, going to the ballet and going to see musicals. Um, There were so many uh, movie musicals when I was a kid, like right at the right, when I was just right at the right age to receive it. Uh, Annie, The Sound of Music, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, A Chorus (laughs) Line, you know, a lot of really like life-changing films for me that are still, a, a lot of them are still my favorite film. And I think, you know, Carol Burnett and, Julie Andrews or Dick Van Dyke were massive influences on me and and that's where my want to perform came from. I'm pretty uh-huh. sure it was like it may well have just been, you know, Carol Burnett as Miss Hannigan and Annie that made me want to do what she was doing. Huh. It's fascinating to me because these are like character actors and you're really a character actor in many ways. And is there a like what is there a specific approach that you use that might be different or does the Strasbourg school teach a a, a way to approach the, those roles? Well, I think a character actor versus any kind of other actor. What makes you a character actor is when someone has decided that you're not good looking enough to be a lead <laughs> or an ingenue. That's what it is. That's really the reality. So there's, you know, that somebody else is telling you what kind of actor you're going to be or what yeah. box they're putting you in. Yeah. So there are like leads that can play leads in movies, I guess, and that are beautiful and fantasy people. And then there are actors. 
those two things do cross, but that's really essentially the difference. So no, there's no there's no difference in the preparation yeah. or anything like that. Well, I I don't know. Maybe, maybe the I'm going to say something I shouldn't. No, yeah. No. <laughs> oh, so close. If only it was Jesse who'd had a few, and we could have got you. Let talk. me tell you about it. Yeah, that'd be different. But I I don't know. As I get older, I just feel like those are always the best actors in any. Well, yeah. And they're the ones that, like, when you say Eve Arden, my heart just, like, lifts because when I see her in the credits of a movie, I just know it's going to be great no matter how Mm -hmm. terrible an actress Sid Charisse is or whatever. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. going to be Mm – Eve Arden's going to be there. Yep, yep, yep. And John Blondell and, you know – Look at them like in in Greece, you know. There's another one like yes, you know, like women with moxie. Yeah, need a few more of them. That could be the. I think that could be the title of your coming at some point in the future autobiography. Moxie. Oh, I like it, June. Put that out into the universe. (laughs) (laughs) Alison Wright, thank you so much for coming to join us, and for anyone who can make it to Broadway, you can see Alison on stage in Sweat playing now at Studio Fifty Four. Thank you, Alison. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Now is the moment in the show when we endorse Willa. What do you have for us? Sure. Uh, I was browsing in a bookstore and I came upon this book by Joseph Albers, which is um, The Interaction of Color. And Joseph Albers is obviously um, a painter who painted like these awesome geometric color squares that you would recognize. (laughs) Um, But he was also a professor. And so when he became a professor at Yale, he put together this huge like 20 pound tome about basically color theory and color context and how colors respond next to other colors so it's like it had a lot of text explaining the theory but it also this like these kind of beautiful still like color like plates of color plates exactly geometric plates um that like he wasn't particularly trying they weren't art but they kind of look like i mean they look like um they look a little bit like his work and they look like other modernist sort of um geometric things and they're great and awesome and beautiful and they're also like optical illusions because you they're like when red is next to black it looks you know you can see purples in different places and it was so fun to look through and i had also just recently seen sunday in the park with george Mm -hmm. the jake gillenhall restaging luckily enough (laughs) and there's in that um you know sondheim surat is constantly talking about how like your eyes are doing magic you know you put the red and the blue together and it makes violet and he was also really entrenched in color theory so i just started like reading about color theory so my recommendations is is interaction of color which is really fun and then to just like do some diving around the internet thinking about how colors work together that's fascinating (laughs) uh laura what's your recommendation this week well i would love to recommend um the company of wolves which is written by Neil Jordan and Angela Carter based on Angela Carter's short story. But it is really uh, hard to find. I mean, I had to order a DVD. It doesn't stream anywhere. So in lieu of that, I want to recommend Byzantium, which is a more recent Neil Jordan movie. Neil Jordan is amazingly a talented filmmaker. He's probably most famous for The Crying Game, but that was many years ago. And he, the just the visual, I mean, I, I was curious, again, watching the Bronte thing, thinking what he would do with the same story. Um, it, he's, he has this incredibly visually rich palette to work with. 
And while I'm usually just very over vampire stories, Byzantium is a vampire story. It's about a mother and daughter vampire traveling around Northern Ireland um, on the lamb from the vampire establishment, which is all male (laughs) and doesn't believe that there should be female vampires. And they sort of live in this deserted ballroom in this kind of, uh, you know, rundown coastal resort town that nobody goes to anymore. And it's just gorgeous and uh, moving, you know, about an unusual relationship that you don't normally see in vampire movies, <laughs> mother and daughter relationship. And um, the the scenes of where people go to become vampires, I don't want to spoil it, are so extraordinarily beautiful and without being overdone. That's the thing that I love about Neil Jordan is that um, – he can do so much more with so much less than you would see in, say, Beauty and the Beast to create a sense of mystery and enchantment. Wow. That sounds amazing. I'm afra- terribly afraid of vampires, but that sounds so good. I might have to. It's uh, not, a, not really a, a horror thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 All right, cool. Um, I would like to recommend something that I've been watching on Acorn TV, which shows a lot of British and Australian and even Kiwi shows. Um, and this is a series, this is a series called Crownies, which is about crown prosecutors. Willa's giving me such looks. <laughs> no more looks, Willa. I'm just like, June, you're being so June. <laughs> With love. Luke's. No more <laughs> looks. Um, and it's about crown prosecutors in, I guess, in Sydney. Um, and it is actually the prequel, in a sense, to Janet King, which is, uh, <laughs> oh my God, the looks from Willa are killing me. Anyway, Crownies is awesome because it's like a, basically an Australian legal procedural, but they swear like sailors. And it's, I don't, I shouldn't be impressed by that or even mention it, but, you know, I am. I'm just a shallow person who likes to hear people swear on television. So, Crownies on Acorn TV. Willa, thank you for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. And Laura, see you next time. It's been a blast. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note on Facebook at facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gabfest is part of the Panoply Network, and you'll find the entire roster of shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cultfest. Steve, Dana and Julia will be back next week. But for Willa Paskin and Laura Miller, I'm June Thomas, and we'll see you soon. No. Yes, Gaston, go